Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Black in Boston and Beyond, a podcast of the Trotter Institute at UMass Boston. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on Black in Boston and Beyond, we have Dr. Nada Ali, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at UMass Boston, who will discuss her research and experience as a woman of color working in higher education in Boston. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ali. Thank you for having me, and welcome to UMass Boston. Thank you so much for taking out time to be our first faculty member profiled on the show, which is, I think, an important uh, place in starting this new uh, podcast. So I really appreciate you uh, helping me out today with this interview. So let's start with your your personal biography, your research and teaching interests. Tell us a little bit about your research and teaching background. Sure. So um, I have been at uh, UMass Boston since uh, 2013. I've been teaching in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department, but I have also been collaborating with um, some of the graduate schools within uh, the university. And so maybe I should start with my um, teaching and then I'll talk about my uh, research briefly. I teach courses in uh, women's gender and, uh, sexuality studies, uh, broadly speaking, uh, but most of my courses focus on the concept of intersectionality. For example, I focus on, you know, like uh, global perspectives of women, especially in the global south. Some of the courses that I have taught have focused on gender and human rights. For example, one of my favorite courses is a course that is taught by a faculty member in alternate years was Advanced Topics in Human Rights. And um, my syllabus actually focused on, you know, gender intersectionality and the politics of memory. I teach courses on gender, globalization and development, women in African cultures. I teach a course in gender and human security for the Department of Global Governance and Human Security. My teaching is uh, to a great extent informed by my own research, which focuses on, broadly speaking, on three overlapping areas. One is gender conflict peace building and post-conflict reconstruction. And this work mostly focuses on Sudan and South Sudan. But also, of course, my background is in comparative politics. So I also think about and integrate uh, insights from studies that focus on the same theme in particularly global South settings. So Africa, Latin America, Asia, especially South Asia and so on. And then the second area of focus for my research is gender and social movements, social media and social change. And um, again, I've been working on a digital ethnography that documents, you know, the narratives and um, insights that women who are from Sudan, either based in Sudan or abroad in the diaspora, you know, like um, articulate their understanding of society and politics and how Facebook platforms, for example, that women created have become a rallying point and the way to mobilize to achieve social change including in the run-up and you, uh, to and during an uprising that happened in Sudan in 2018 and 2019. I think also my first book, which focuses on gender, race, and Sudan's exile politics, 
also falls within this area of interest of uh, social movements, social media and social change, and the area that I talked about earlier on gender conflict, peace building and post-conflict reconstruction. And in that research, I also conducted fieldwork in South Sudan on the experiences of women former combatants who underwent disarmament, demobilization and reintegration, um, you know, like uh, security sector reform processes or programs, were part of these programs. And then another area of interest for me, and I assure you that all these areas are interrelated and they overlap as well, is the area of global health. And um, in that area, I focus mainly on HIV and AIDS, gender equality in Africa in particular. But I have also thought about these questions in Middle Eastern contexts, as well as female genital cutting and uh, mutilation. And so the area of HIV and AIDS, I carried out research in uh, Zambia, in Nigeria, and also in South Sudan. And part of this research is actually published. So these are the main areas of research, and I, um, you know, I'm sure you can tell that my research is actually interdisciplinary, and um, I basically use qualitative research methods in engaging, uh, you know, with the questions and the themes that I just mentioned, you know. But uh, so I have used ethnographic research. I have used digital ethnographic research methods. You know, I ha- I'm currently actually working. Um, on, I'm writing up actually research which I carried out with street vendors in Sudan uh, that engages with uh, questions of, um, you know, like epistemology and the politics of knowledge production in Sudan and how uh, the perspectives of historically and currently marginalized groups actually may inform, um, you know, like politics and um, visions for you know, social change and transformation in Sudan. And this was based on actually documenting the oral histories of these women. So I use different uh, methods and um, I I have an, like my approach is interdisciplinary in both my teaching and research. And that is to a great extent uh, because the fields within which I work are actually interdisciplinary. This sounds fascinating, especially uh, your work in the digital humanities realm, the discussion about wanting to to get the stories of these women into different digital platforms like uh, Facebook. And it sounds, that's not, we have to talk some more (laughs) outside of the show because I'm very interested in that in um, digital humanities right now, currently. So in the street vendors, your discussion of, of, you know, knowledge production in the street vendors, that sounds very fascinating. So I definitely want to talk to you some more about that. Why study gender? What made you, um, you know, what prompted your interest? Was there a mentor or a teacher that you encountered or someone that sort of encouraged your study of women and gender in a society? Thank you for this question, actually. Sure. I've always uh, been interested and concerned with, the, you know, like the the experiences and uh, situations of uh, women in Sudan, in particular, my country of origin, and in South Sudan, which seceded from Sudan in 2011. And I have been interested in questions about gender equality and the way, um, you know, like, uh, of course, gender, but also other aspects of difference, such as race, um, you know, like social class, um, different ability, uh, shape our lives, shape our experiences uh, of marginalization, 
shape our experiences of um, privilege, of course, shape our um, like shape our identities in many ways, and also shape the way we resist, um, you know, oppression and marginalization. And so I've always been like in conversations with my late mother, um, in conversations with my teachers at school, and then uh, some of our professors at the University of Khartoum, where I did my undergraduate studies and at the University of, uh, at the American University in Cairo, where I did my master's, you know, and beyond, of course. So uh, I've always been interested in these issues and I uh, see myself right now as an engaged scholar, but I have always been an activist. You know, I sought to understand, mm-hmm. I seek to understand, but also to transform gender relations from a feminist perspective. Um, I don't know whether you know this, uh, Haiti, but all my degrees are actually in political science. So mm-hmm. I did uh, my undergraduate studies in uh, political science. My, I did my master's in political science and I did my uh, PhD in government. You know, as I said earlier, with a specialization in comparative politics and then a narrower specialization in development studies using a critical perspective. However, all of my research, starting from my honors thesis, has focused on questions that pertain to the experiences of women in Sudan and elsewhere as well. Uh, so the like it, it was the second uh, study I did, but it was for my honors year as an undergraduate in my in Sudan. It is the secondary school, okay. So the way secondary school curriculum, you know, addresses questions of gender and um, you know whether it includes any references to women and how women are constructed within that curriculum. So I focused on I did like a, a discourse and the content analysis of. Um, you know, uh, some of the books that I studied in high school. And so that was my honors thesis. And then afterwards, for my master's, I focused on, again, uh, the experiences of street vendors in the town where I was born, uh, Adbara, which is 300 kilometers to the north of uh, Khartoum. I carried out extensive interviews with women street vendors there who were trying to cope with an economic crisis as well as political oppression um, at the time, uh, there was um, like a dictatorial government that formerly, you know, like dominated the country, expelled and dismissed, um, you know, workers in the railways, for example, in in Adbara. And as a result, um, you know, women in these house and those were male workers, so women in these households have had to uh, venture. Um, into the public sphere and they became street vendors and um, I document their experiences and I also looked at and uh, asked whether these experiences had actually led to any changes in terms of power relationships, especially power relationships within the household, whether uh, these experiences have actually led to a change in uh, perceptions um, of femininity and masculinity you know, in that particular uh, community. And um, so as a graduate student at the University of Manchester, I audited every course that the Women's and Gender Studies, um, you know, like PhD program offered. And so basically I have an informal, (laughs) informally I have a PhD in Women's and Gender Studies as well. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, you know, these are some of the, Aspects of my journey, actually, uh, that are related to my understand to my interest in women's and gender studies and in, you know, uh, questions of gender equality and intersectionality as well. As I'm sure you can tell, I can spend the whole day talking about this, you know, but these are just some insights. 
to get this. No, it's great. It's it's important because we have a lot of students, uh, undergrad and graduate students that listen to the show. So if a student was interested in studying gender at UMass Boston and they wanted to work with you or take a course with you, we might pause and, and let you tell us how might they reach you or, you know, take one of your classes maybe specifically mention the class number and things like that in terms of well, where are you located on campus in the sense, where could they find you? They want to take class with you. Okay. So first of all, I want to say that I am one member of a very rich community of feminists who work within the women's and gender studies department, feminists and womanists. So, you know, within the gen- the women's uh, gender and sexuality studies department and also uh, across campus, you know, like yourself, you know, in different departments who uh, deal with these questions. But I am um, based that my office actually is in Wheatley, fifth floor, and it's office number 108. Uh, This semester, my office hours are Wednesdays between 11 and 2, 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. My email address is nada.ali at umb.edu. Thank you for giving us that information. I'll also share it in the show notes for any students listening to us who might be interested in taking some of these courses with Dr. Ali. Very important uh, information for you to be able to find uh, after listening to the show. So let's... Gender. Given the attack on gender studies, area studies, critical race theory that's happening right now in the U.S., why do you think it's important to study gender in society? Okay. So since there are students who are listening to this show, and this is wonderful, really. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, maybe we could start by defining the word gender itself. Sure. Okay. So gender is uh, the social and cultural construction of uh, differences between the sexes. It is the traits and the roles that societies actually attach or allocate to their members, to members of society as well. It is a power relationship and um, it is also a unit of analysis, of course. I think of gender uh, in intersectional uh, terms. And again, intersectionality is another word that I would like to um, maybe define. In the past, maybe in 2012, before joining uh, UMass Boston, when I uh, uh, taught about intersectionality and about, um, you know, the, like what it means and so on, students used to ask, you know, intersect what? It wasn't really that familiar, the theory itself. But right uh, now, many students who attend my classes have, are actually familiar with the term itself. But it is a concept and it is a, it's a metaphorical term, which African-American legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw coined in 1989. But of course, intersectional analysis predated the coinage of this term. It is rooted in 19th and 20th century uh, theorizing, especially by Black women, and especially in the United States, but not exclusively in the United States. I personally, my own um, position on the debate, you know, on the relevance and the importance of, um, you know, uh, area studies, for example, including Africana studies and on women's gender and sexuality studies and a number of other fields, is that this is important in its own uh, right. Okay, this is important for expanding our knowledge, for rendering our knowledge more 
comprehensive and complete any knowledge, actually, any form of knowledge production that ignores questions about gender equality and about intersectionality or any um, research and learning that uh, omits the experiences and the histories of uh, certain groups is incomplete and is actually uh, distorted. And I want to say that, you know, Africana studies, for example, area studies in general, and also women's and gender studies are the product. They did not, um, you know, become part of um, academia um, overnight, nor in an easy manner. You know, those are the products or this is the product of uh, extensive activism, you know, by uh, women's um, organizations and movements, by, um, you know, like, uh, of course, the civil rights movement and, uh, you know, movements and forms of organizing by academics and scholars of uh, color um, from uh, across the globe as well. And so the importance of uh, studying these disciplines and fields is that, you know, we as educators, um, are better able to encourage students to think about uh, ways in which history, for example, shapes our present, right? We are able to empower uh, them through availing concepts and theories and, of course, case studies um, that would help them think about, uh, think critically about and also uh, challenge injustice and inequality. And this benefits everyone in society. I'm sure you would agree with me. We uh, are able to help students think about difference and intersectionality, um, you know, and intersecting aspects of identity and how these shape, again, our uh, uh, lives. We are able to render students more reflective, you know. Feminist scholars and womanist scholars um, are very fond of reflexivity, for example, in terms of research and in terms of teaching as well. And, you know, that makes students uh, better citizens, better human beings. It enables educators to learn from the experiences of students and to legitimize and uh, make, uh, sorry, to legitimize these experiences or enable students to make sense of and legitimize um, these experiences. You know, our uh, fields of study actually make students more culturally competent. You know, Uh, they feed into um, the, like, uh, increasing interest in ensuring that we have, um, you know, like equity and inclusion, right, and diversity in various uh, settings, including uh, on campuses, but also in society in general. Yes, now, I think these are some great points, you know, citizenship, being, you know, critical analysis skills, and more productive, uh, ultimately more productive as professionals and in society, cultural competence, all of these things, the students that are listening to us now in terms of why study in this field, you can see how many different skills that you would get out of the study, uh, but also ethics, right? It's You're talking also Absolutely. about human ethics. And uh, so let's turn to your own experience, you know, more uh, in depth in terms of your experience as a woman of color in the academy and perhaps at uh, UMass Boston in particular, share with us anything you feel comfortable sharing with us about your own experiences. Okay, so first of all, I want to say that there is an expanding body of literature actually that documents and that analyzes the experiences of women of color in the academy. 
And, uh, you know, I'm sure that um, you are familiar with some of this um, work, uh, Professor Williams, and, um, you know, with the challenges that women of color face in academia and also in other settings. You know, I uh, haven't only worked in academia, I worked in um, other settings as well. That is why this is one reason I refer to myself as engaged uh, scholar. But um, what I would like to say maybe for the interest of our, or in the interest of our students uh, who are listening to this show, you know, that as a woman of color in the classroom, for example, you know, I have been able to share aspects of my experience with students in the classroom and to also encourage them to share aspects of their own experiences. The, the texts that we cover in class include, for example, some of the writings of Bell Hooks, um, in which she talks about women and students in, the, in higher education. Uh, we cover the work of Chandra Talpada Mohanty as well, who talks about uh, and uh, studies, uh, again, um, women in institutions of higher education, amongst other things, of course, and also, you know, looks critically about the construction of women from the global south in literature. And so I am in engaging with the questions that we focus on. I'm able to draw on my own um, experience and learning as a researcher and as a human being in addressing these questions of race, gender, you know, like and other aspects of difference, of course, being someone uh, from the global south originally, for example. So I don't know whether I have responded uh, to your question, but that is an important question. And I would be like, uh, I'm hoping uh, someday to write about my experiences as um, a woman in the academy and in other settings as well. I remember I'm thinking of positive and negative experience because you've clearly been successful at navigating the academy, right? In terms of all of your scholarship, your teaching, your activism, you've been successful at it. At the moment, many people are walking away. And I don't know if that's, you know, in part post-COVID moment that we're having where lots of people are walking away from the academy. But as somebody who's been successful at it, what piece of advice would you give, you know, a woman of color, Black women perhaps in particular, about how to successfully navigate the academy? Okay, that is a really interesting question who maybe a professor would be able to respond to better <laughs> or maybe yourself <laughs> than myself. But I do have insights to share. So I think one piece of advice I would, I would give to women of color in the academy is that, you know, it is important to surround uh, ourselves with mentors and to find uh, and to build and contribute to communities, especially communities of women of color in the academy. This way we learn from um, each other, you know, like we learn from um, uh, our colleagues and we can also impart advice. On my part, you know, one thing, you know, that I like to say is that, so first of all, I did not go straight into the academy after I finished my PhD. And the reason is that I had to actually at the time, I was involved in some of the activism, you know, to address human rights abuses, for example, and other forms of oppression arising from my country of origin being, you know, dominated by like a, a military government. 
And so I was active and part of the women's movement in exile. And as a result, I needed to travel to East Africa, for example, sometimes for meetings, sometimes at a short notice. And um, I did not want to be in a situation where I would need to travel like midway through the academic term or the semester and, um, you know, just leave my students, you know. And so what I did, and at the time there was like uh, online teaching and education was not an option. So I started, you know, joining various organizations, women's organizations, and working within these establishments, okay, Uh, research organizations, UN agencies. And this is a very rich experience and an important part of my life. And I, I did so even before I started my PhD. After finishing my master's, I worked as the women's program coordinator in the Cairo Institute for Human Rights Studies, for example. And what that contributed to me is that I had been witness to some of the issues and the developments that I now discuss in my, uh, you know, gender and human security class, in my women in African cultures class, and in my other classes as well. Um, you know, in that role that I just mentioned, I attended, for example, the 1995 conference, in you know, like the Beijing conference on women. And that was a significant, you know, uh, like many documents that came out of that I teach um, in my human rights and women and gender studies courses. I uh, attended the World Summit for Social Development that took place in 1995. I was very young at the time, you know, but I was able to see how women's organizations from across the globe, but especially from global South settings, actually use this, were part of these platforms and that they use these platforms to expand policy and even our understanding of certain, you know, issues such as sustainable development and so on. And this has had a far lasting impact. Again, you know, after the Beijing conference, women and activists from across the world, but especially from Global South setting, rallied, for example, to, you know, like put pressure on the Security Council to adopt a resolution, Resolution 1325, on women, peace and security. And this gave rise to a whole subfield, actually, you know, and the women, peace and security agenda, which informs my research, for example, on disarmament, demobilization and reintegration in South Sudan. So I uh, come from, um, you know, this background as an activist, as an engaged scholar and so on. So I did not go straight into academia. However, in maybe 2010, uh, between 2010 and 2012, I, I started to transition back into academia. So I held a number of fellowships that enabled me, for example, to update my literature, um, you know, like the literature that I use for my doctorate uh, research that enabled me to carry out further research in Sudan and South Sudan and in other parts of the African continent as well, which informed, you know, the writing of my first book, as I said. And then I had a an appointment as um, part-time faculty at the new school. And then I had visiting uh, positions at Clark University. And then I came to UMass Boston as a lecturer, you know. At the time, I wasn't very clear about, for example, the difference between being a lecturer and being an assistant professor, because in England, where I trained uh, for my doctoral research, a lecturer uh, progressed into becoming a reader, for example, and then a, a full professor. So I wasn't, I don't think I was that clear about the difference between being on the 10-year track and the non-10-year track and the non-10-year track. And, um, you know, perhaps if I had a better understanding, my, um, like I would have, I would have taken a different trajectory, 
not to say that being non-tenure track faculty is necessarily uh, problematic if someone was interested in teaching, and this is an area of interest for me, you know, but if one is interested in research, then it becomes even more difficult, and especially for women of color, you know, in the academy. It adds another layer of identity that may contribute to one's, um, you know, marginalization, for example. However, uh, you know, one of the reasons that made me stay at UMass Boston and to continue is the absolutely wonderful community of scholars, including scholars of color within um, the university. And so very early on, like in 2013, when I joined uh, the university, I became part of a human rights committee, actually, or group that was working on building the human rights minor, which is housed in the Women's and Gender Studies Department uh, further. You know, as part of this work, like I just mentioned one important part of this work, which is coming up with an edition edited by our uh, Dean of Faculty, Rajini Srikanth, and um, current Chair of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, Elora Chowdhury. And the focus, the, the, rec- the book title is Interdisciplinary Approaches to Human Rights. And the book is actually entirely authored by faculty from UMass Boston and also some students. And we use this book in our Introduction to Human Rights course as the main textbook. And what that means is that it enables the instructors who are teaching the course to invite colleagues who have authored the chapters of the textbook to come and give talks and to discuss the questions that they raise in their research with uh, students. And so, you know, maybe one piece of advice is if one is interested in both teaching and research, you know, of course, and service, then it may be a better idea to find 10-year stream positions. You know, uh, as I said earlier, there is an expanding body of literature on this issue. And um, there is a a book by the title, uh, I think it's by um, Carrie Ann. I have actually a copy of the book. It is co-authored and um, it is the title is The Black Academic's Guide to Winning Tenure Without Losing Your, uh, your Soul. And it is about mm-hmm. balancing your research, teaching, service commitments. And it is about advancing in academia while also keeping your voice and integrity and speaking your truth. So I don't know whether I responded to your question, Hetty. You know, but these are some insights that um, maybe others may learn from my unique experience. And just to let you know that I uh, do mentor uh, graduate students as well as postdoctoral colleagues within UMass Boston, but also in other universities. And um, this is a, for me, this is very meaningful. And so I'm able to share some of this advice with my mentees oftentimes. No, I think you you cover a lot of ground here. If we could, um, you know, just important points, four or five important points uh, for any grad students or early career academics listening to us today. You talk about real world experience, that you had some real world experience before you came into the academy. So there's nothing wrong with having, in fact, that might be really important to have before you enter the academy. So I found that to be a very important point. You talk about the value of mentors. Find yourself some good mentors. May or may not be in your field. 
right? You can have mentors for different things and outside of your own field. I think you also talk about building community. You know, once you arrive on a particular campus, find your community or build it where you stand, right? In the classroom, outside of the classroom, collaborating with other scholars on campus, and you're teaching and writing. I think that you really cover some of those important points. Community, mentoring, collaboration. That's how you survive. I think that's absolutely spot on for anyone listening to us wondering, how am I going to survive? And uh, Carrie Ann Rockamore's important book that you mentioned too. Yes. I'll leave that also as a, um, a link in the show notes for everybody. The Black Academic's Guide to Winning Tenure Without Losing Your Soul. We, we need a manual, right? <laughs> to do it because it can be tough sometimes. <laughs> So let's look at your own research. Tell us some more. Give us some more insight on your really, I think it's like really spectacular work. Also, Professor, give yourself a plug for your book. Tell us where the name of your book, where to find it, your articles. Tell us a little bit um, more specifics about those, because I'm going to also put that information in the show notes, too. Sure. So the title of my uh, first book is Gender, Race, and Sudan's Exile Politics. Uh, Do we all belong to this country? And uh, it is based on a multi-site ethnography or multi-site ethnographic research, which I carried out amongst the Sudanese opposition in exile in the late 1990s and early 2000s. But then I also carried out further field research right before publishing the book. So between 2010 and 20. Uh, 14 in Sudan and South Sudan. And the multi-site ethnographic research took place in Cairo, where the majority of the Sudanese opposition at the time was based in Eritrea, as well as in Kenya, where some of the Southern Sudanese opposition uh, was based. And I'll just give you a very, very brief background about Sudan. It is a country which is based in uh, Northeast Africa, not you, uh, but to our listeners, uh, and also are a former British colony. We achieved political independence in 1956. And, um, you know, between 1956 and, um, you know, uh, the present, like since Sudan achieved political independence, we have really gone through a vicious cycle of military coups on one hand and also, um, you know, like very short-lived democratic regimes and transitional periods the last of which was the last transitional period we had was 19 uh, sorry was 20 following the 2019 uprising and um, again this process came to a halt in 2021 when um, uh, the military uh, representative on Sudan's southern council at the time in the government staged a coup actually and basically overthrew the government arrested the prime minister and started a, a, a new um, government which is military controlled by the military so anyway so sudan is in a state of war right now which erupted in this year actually in on the 15th of april 2023 and it's been ongoing now for about 5 months it led to um, i know you asked me to talk about my research but this is now also a, f- a focus area of my research the current conflict and its impact on uh, the same populations I have been carrying out research with and for before the start of the war, which is street vendors. But it led to the displacement of over 5 million uh, people. 
And um, that is, I think, eight times the number of the population of in Boston here. Okay. So my book, Gender, Race and Sudan Exile Politics, Do We All Belong to This Country? As I said, it's based on research, which I carried out in the late 1990s, early 2000s, as well as in 2010 to 2014. Uh, it was a multi-site ethnography, which took place in, it's a qualitative research, actually, approach. And um, I carried out interviews, fo- I organized focus group discussions, I also analyzed documents, like I did archival analysis as well, archival research um, in Egypt, in Eritrea, uh, also in East Africa, and in Kenya. I interviewed over 100, actually, participants in this study, and those included politicians and leaders of political parties who reflected on their understanding of gender equality um, and women's human rights. And um, I also interviewed women's organizations who were trying to influence the work of the opposition in exile from uh, gender and uh, a women's perspective, from the perspectives of women. Not everybody, of course, defined themselves as uh, feminists. And uh, this is the first study, my, my book, uh, in Sudanese studies that uses an intersectional perspective. And so I used an intersectional perspective to look at the differences amongst women's groups, you know, and how race and other aspects of difference actually shaped, um, you know, activisms, actually, and, um, you know, resistance uh, in the women's movement to exclusion. So I looked at the exclusionary politics of the Sudanese opposition and the way women resisted that. And so that's my book. It was published in 2015 by Lexington Books. I have written other articles that are based on that particular research. The other uh, publications I have include a paper on uh, women and um, disarmament, demobilization and reintegration in South Sudan, particularly focusing on the experiences of former combatants who underwent DDR after uh, Southern Sudanese opposition signed peace agreement, a comprehensive peace agreement with the former government of Sudan, which ended the war. And so some of the women who were active in the army and in that movement underwent DDR. And um, I was um, like one of the questions I asked in that uh, research and in that paper, it is based on research in Juba, in South Sudan, and also in Wau, which is also a city in South Sudan. I asked, what if we drew on the experiences and insights of um, communities such as, um, you know, like women who underwent DDR, women former combatants, and communities on the ground to inform not only our theorizing on conflict, uh, peace building and post-conflict reconstruction, but also our policy, you know, on security sector reform, for example, in post-war settings. And um, definitely this research, you know, like highlights some of the unique perspectives of women, former combatants and communities, you know, draws attention to the importance of not thinking about former combatants as individuals, um, you know, but as a part of uh, communities that have certain cultural norms that actually um, define uh, their experiences. I also give specific recommendations regarding ways to improve security sector reform and DDR processes by paying attention to context, by paying attention to gender equality, uh, to the diversity of combatants and their experiences, to the specific needs of women, former combatants, and so on. Um, And I I looked at how, um, you know, like in the post-war South Sudan, uh, like a, a hierarchy of human value 
came about and um, some uh, former combatants uh, were defined as heroes and they assumed you know uh, important positions in government uh, but also others were uh, like became invisible mainly so we, uh, and those include women former combatants and women associated with the army who were associated with the army during uh, the war and um, uh, this was published in 2021 in a book edited by uh, Sarah Nowen and others. And the title of the book is Making and Breaking the Peace uh, in Sudan and South Sudan, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement and Beyond. My um, current research on uh, the experiences of street vendors, I carried out fieldwork last summer and also two years ago in Khartoum, uh, where I carried out interviews uh, with street vendors and you know, activists in the women's movement. And the street vendors are actually organized in cooperatives. And as I said, I used oral history, actually, uh, the oral history approach uh, for this research. But also as part of broader research, I have uh, carried out uh, collaborative research where I worked closely with um, uh, two colleagues, researchers who were based in Khartoum at the time, one researcher who was based in Eastern Sudan, in Port Sudan, and also uh, a fourth researcher who is based in a non-government-held areas uh, by the name South Kurdufan, actually in the new south of Sudan. And again, we documented the experiences of women street vendors and also uh, women uh, farmers in South Kurdufan. And um, again, we used this research to engage with some of the major issues that the transitional government was dealing with, with and also that civil society organizations and movements um, were dealing with during transition in Sudan and, um, you know, made concrete uh, policy recommendations as well as part of this uh, research. So that's another uh, piece of research. And I'm currently actually working on a book that documents the experience of street vendors um, during the uprising, during transition, and now, you know, during displacement and war as they face war. I don't just document the experiences of street vendors and their forms of mobilization and organization, uh, but I also look at the specific ways in which they contribute actually to society, in which they contribute to politics as well. And um, I think that, you know, uh, it is important to highlight the way in which organizations and movements such as, you know, neighborhood resistance committees in Sudan, cooperatives of women street vendors, women farmers, youth, women's organizations in general, um, especially the way they have contributed, for example, to evacuating, you know, citizens from Khartoum at the start of the war, you know, the the important roles that they contribute to the very survival, okay, uh, of communities. But I think also, um, you know, uh, learning about the mobilizations and organizing of these bodies offer us, um, you know, important insights about ways to come up with uh, alternative, you know, uh, political visions for social change and transformation and uh, to ensure a popular uh, democratic future in Sudan. And of course, uh, some of these experiences and even forms of mobilizations are not distinct to Sudan. They are distinct to other parts of the Middle East and Africa. And, you know, we also can come up with important insights based on this research. Well, professors, thank you so much. I I love the way your work uh, combines community-engaged scholarship with collaborative practice and traditional, you know, forms of publication. 
And now also in the digital media realm, you're also bringing that in. So I think that's just really brilliant uh, in terms of your approach and your very relevant topic. And um, we are looking forward to your next book. And uh, But I want to thank you so much for taking your time out today, for um, being a guest on Black in Boston and Beyond the first, you know, faculty profile that I've done. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me in this program. <laughs>